0: With the recent events unfolding in the Middle East, many are appropriating the Bible's words to these conflicts. One popular example is the supposed Psalm 83 war or Psalm 83 conflict. But is Psalm 83 even a prophecy? Today, we're going to find out what history and the Bible have to say about it. Hey everybody, welcome to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander, and I'm your host. Thanks so much for being with me today. If you haven't yet subscribed, make sure you do so on my website or through my sub stack. Those are the two best ways for us to stay in touch, especially with how these platforms work. I know that YouTube has been cracking down on anybody speaking any level of truth, especially in the Christian sphere, so you just never know. At the very least, you may not see the things that I create because I've had people tell me that they try to like some videos and YouTube erases it and those kinds of things. So ultimately my recommendation to you and my invitation is to subscribe via my website or my Substack, where I collect pretty much everything that I write and publish there as well. But today I am continuing this end time series that I've created. It's a pretty hefty series. And of course, there's always something to talk about because we are living in the end times. We're living in the end of the end times. The end times has been around since the cross, but we're really at the tail end of the end times and deception is at a maximum. There's a lot of things happening. And if you have gone through my series, you know where kind of we are in the the gist of things, because a lot of people are very deceived, especially with with what's happening on the world stage. And so I had somebody bring up this idea of the Psalm 83 war to my attention. Of course, I've Seen lots of people talk about it, especially with all the stuff that's going on in Israel right now. Everybody, all the dispensationalists, all the Christian Zionists are all over it, and they're very deceived. Let me just put it that way. Now, you may be insulted by that because you believe there's a Psalm 83 conflict, or you believe in dispensationalism. But I invite you to stay with me today through the video, through the presentation, and I also invite you to go watch the whole series especially episodes where we talk about for example israel and the third temple that's a crucial one we talk about the church and the kingdom so many the millennial kingdom there's just so many important concepts to understand with the end times certainly and i said this in the series you could have an entire ministry on end time stuff and you could just do end time stuff all day every day i don't want to do that that's not my calling i enjoy studying the end times, but ultimately, look, it's about having the basics. The whole point of arming you with with all those things that I put in that end time series, because I was very deceived. And so ultimately I said, you know, I need to create a resource for other people so that they don't experience what I experienced, which is just feeling very deceived. And, And so the point wasn't to cover every single topic because there are just so many verses, so many countless topics but rather to arm you with the ability to interpret correctly. So that when you see something like, oh my gosh, Hamas attacks Israel, is this the Israel, is this the Psalm 83 conflict? Well, wait a minute, hold on a second there. Is is there even a prophecy in Psalm 83? How do we know? What, What are the assumptions that go into a given belief? You have to always question the assumptions. If you do not question the assumptions and you accept a belief, That is how the deception works. It's magic. It's just like a magic show. When somebody is doing a magic show, they get you to assume something and then they distract you with that assumption while something else is happening. And then suddenly you're like, oh, where did the lady go? Or where did the object go? It's just deception and it all works the same. But somebody brought this to my attention. Of course, I didn't put it in the series and it's an important topic because Today, with all the stuff that's going on with Israel, and probably will continue to go on, who knows? More and more people are talking about these things. And it is leading many who do not have experience or discernment into error, into deception, into dispensationalist teachings. So, in the effort of continuing to refute dispensationalism, today I want to talk to you about why Psalm 83 is not a prophecy has nothing to do with anything in the future, but it's actually a present reality. So go check out the series because dispensationalism is wrong for very many reasons. Again, if that insults you, then good. Then realize that there is something going on there. Either I'm right, not me, but the things that I've presented, which are biblical truth in the series, either that position is right, or dispensationalism is right. Both those things can't coexist. So people who espouse dispensationalism, you have to really question your beliefs and where they come from. And if you know your history of your beliefs, then the real beast, the true beast, which is the papacy, the Catholic institution, created futurism, which dispensationalism is part of. It's a branch of futurism. But futurism was created by the Jesuits Manuel Lacunza, Francisco Ribera, Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, to hide the identity of the beast. So just with that information, that's all I'm gonna say about that. Just with that information, if you really care about the truth and you believe in dispensationalism, would you not owe it to yourself to investigate further? Gosh, what if that's true? What if my beliefs come from the Jesuits and the beast itself in order to hide its identity. What does that mean? What have I overlooked? And there's a lot, of course, the dispensationalists have overlooked and we go over that in the series. But there's no position that has the truth because every position, whether you're pre mill post mill ah mill dispensationalist, they all have some error that they drift into. That is another reason why I decided to make the series. Because I was very deceived. When I consulted everyone's position, I realized there was something amiss. That there needed to be a narrow road position without an identifier. There's no name for that position. It's just the narrow road. And so ultimately, that's why I created the series. So go check it out. Because people right now, especially those who believe in dispensationalism, Christian nationalism, Christian Zionism, all these isms are walking into the greatest deception that will ever come in the history of mankind, which is the new world order. Now, that's not going to be a communist world order. It's going to be a Christian nationalist world order. If you think I'm crazy, go watch the series. It will be a union of church and state just like it was for 1,400 years, possibly with a bonus of a false Christ, Lucifer masquerading as the son of God. And how many people are going to fall for it because they believe in a future physical millennial reign of Jesus on the throne of David in Jerusalem instead of seeing the spiritual meaning behind these things. So go check out the series. But today the topic is Psalm 83 and the quote-unquote Psalm 83 conflict or Psalm 83 war that everybody's talking about. So a lot of dispensationalists are... Obviously, talking about the fighting going on in Israel and how it may lead to the Psalm 83 conflict, whatever that happens to be. Dispensationalism, of course, believes that Israel is the centerpiece of prophecy, God's timepiece. It's not, but that's what they believe. So they Judaize everything to suit their agenda. Everything becomes Judaized and Jewish nation focused. And of course, the state of Israel, if you know the history of the state of Israel, it has all the hallmarks and the fingerprints of the devil all over it. But that's a topic for another time. Today, we're going to look at why Psalm 83 is not about a war in the future. It's not a prophecy at all, actually. We're going to read the whole thing in context and we're going to break it down. But I want you first to consider a few very important things. And the first is that when there is an end times prophecy in the Bible, God is very transparent about that fact. He lets you know, and I can give you very many examples. So let's take a look at a few examples. First and foremost, before I look at any scriptural text, I want to preface by saying that you'll always see things like the latter days, in the day of the Lord, the days to come. These types of signifiers are always attached to end times types of prophecies that are specifically about end times events. So now let's look at the various texts. Genesis 49 verse 1. Jacob blesses his sons. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourself together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Future prophecy. Numbers 24 verse 14. And now behold, I'm going to my people come I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. This is Balaam's final oracle, and it's it's a prophecy of the future. Jeremiah 30, verse 24. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. This is an ongoing theme throughout the Bible. Jeremiah 49, verse 39. But in the latter days, I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. Another prophecy of the future, Daniel 2, verse 28, the statue vision. But here, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Of course, the statue that he had a vision of is the future. It's the, until the end of time. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. So this is where he decodes the dream. But again, latter days. Daniel 12, verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. This is fulfilled in our day with the internet. But again, time of the end. This was, you know, 2,000 years ago, a little more than that, 2,500 years ago. Hosea 3, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. The latter days. It's always about the latter days, which really began with the cross. The last two days were, or however long it's going to be. But I mean, you look, read the writing on the wall. I think we are in the season of the Lord's return. Who knows when it's going to be exactly. And of course, some people have a theory that, The parable of the Good Samaritan, when he gives them the two denarii and he'll return, says, I'm going to return in two days. A day day with the Lord is a thousand years, which, again, that's poetic, but, you know, do the math, two thousand years. I mean, we're kind of on schedule with that if you look at the world around you. So, again, nobody knows the day, but certainly I believe we're in that generation. And the latter days, meaning the last two days, really. Began with the cross. We've been in the end times since the cross. But you also have this idea of the day of the Lord, which is very important. And a couple places in the Old Testament. This is uh, Zephaniah 2, verses 2 through 3. Actually, we'll just start at 1. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decrees take effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of of the Lord. This is a special day, it's a day of judgment, the final day. Isaiah thirteen verse nine, Behold the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. It's a day of judgment, future judgment. Joel chapter two verse one blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Judgment, again, future judgment. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. Malachi, chapter 4, verse 1. The great day of the Lord. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Again, I am really excited for the series that I'm going to be doing very soon on the afterlife. Kind of just a quick note here, but the idea of an immortal soul that persists after death where you float around either going to hell or purgatory or heaven is a pagan invention. And I know that's a very controversial idea, but if you will indulge me when I start that series, you'll learn the truth. The Bible teaches that the soul is contingent. It is contingent with our earthly existence. When you die, your soul dies. Now your soul is brought back to life. You are resurrected. Everybody is resurrected, whether you're evil or good. The question is, will you continue to live once you're resurrected? If you're resurrected for the resurrection of wrath, you're going to be thrown into the lake of fire and destroyed after suffering a very painful death, i.e., the death that you deserved on the cross. And since you rejected Christ, then well, you'll get it. You'll get something worse, really. But ultimately, that's what awaits everybody's resurrection. So when it says the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble, yeah, they're going to be destroyed. People are not going to be tormented in hell forever. Now, that shouldn't be a sigh of relief if you're an atheist because, (laughs) first off, you're going to be destroyed. You'll be deleted. You'll never exist. That, to me, is a frightening thought. But before that, you're going to suffer a horrible, horrible, horrible death while you realize that you were wrong and you made the greatest mistake of your life. So that is a very horrible outcome. But nonetheless, I digress. The great day of the Lord, a future judgment. That was in Malachi 4 verse 1. Zechariah 12 verse 3. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it on that day. Again, there's a future day, a future prophecy. Zechariah 14, verse 13. On that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of the other and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Revelation, chapter 1, verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Again, this is about future judgment. Some people think that, oh, you see, this is proof that The apostles were already worshiping on Sunday as the day of rest. No, not true. The Lord's Day is referring to the day of the Lord, meaning the day of judgment. John was in the spirit on the day of judgment. And of course, earlier in Revelation in chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Revelation is a prophecy. And of course, it has what we just said, an attachment to the day of the Lord or the Lord's day, in the case of the English translation. But it's the day of the Lord. In the original language, it's, it just ties back to all these times when it was the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. The day that's coming, that will reconcile all things. So, what do you make of all this? Well, the conclusion is that God is very obvious about his end times prophecies. Very much so. It's always about the coming day, in the latter days. It's always... Signaled in some way that this is about the future. Very much, very obvious, very transparent. The question is now, is there any such indicator in Psalm 83? The answer, as you probably guessed it, is no. There is no such indicator in Psalm 83. There's no in the latter days. There's nothing about the day of the Lord. In the end times, the times of the end, the days to come. None of that. There is literally nothing in Psalm 83. And so then the question is, why are people interpreting it as a future prophecy? Because dispensationalism's assumptions are fundamentally wrong. And so they look through other parts of the Bible with faulty assumptions, and they Judaize everything because they've made Israel the center. And when you make Israel the center when it's not, You look at other things and say, oh, look, see, that confirms my belief. It's called confirmation bias. But we can sift through that very easily with good exegesis, good hermeneutics. You don't have to be going to a seminary or some advanced Bible scholar to really discern the truth. You just have to let go of the teachings of men, start with a blank slate, and look at the text plainly. First and foremost, there's no indicator that this is a prophecy. So now let's go to Psalm 83 and read the whole thing. And let's just see what it says. Psalm 83, O God, do not keep silence. A song, a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom, pay attention to these names. And the Ishmaelites and Moab and the Hagrites. Gibal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make the nobles like Oreb and Zeab, all their princes like Zeba and Zelmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. O my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. There's another reference to chaff, by the way. It's a very constant theme. As fire consumes the forest, as flame sets the mountain ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. That they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. Beautiful words, but the question now is this, is there a possibility that this Psalm is talking about a present reality of the time? If you said yes, then you're right. It is talking about a present reality of the time. It's not a prophetic prophecy of the end times. It's not a prophetic utterance of the end times. Reading backwards in time, thousands of years, and trying to appropriate something to history when there is no such reason to do so is the very reason why dispensationalism is wrong, unbiblical, and deceptive. So I invite you to let go of these ideas because they will deceive you. I want to read you a little bit about some history of the area and how this was fulfilled. This is from an article titled, Psalm 83 is not a prophecy by Steve Collins. It's dated about two years ago. And it says this, David wrote many of his psalms about his life experiences, crying out to God for help, healing, judgment, and defeat for his enemies, praising God for his deliverances and greatness, and so on. Psalm 83 fits this genre of themes. Psalm 83 fits perfectly with 1 Chronicles 18-19, where David's army was in a major war with a large alliance that included Mesopotamians, Arameans, Ammonites, and others. The dominant power of Mesopotamia at the time was Assyria, or Ashur. All these nations are named in Psalm 83 as being in a war against David to wipe out the Israelites. It is logical that they would attack David's army as it had already reached the Euphrates River, That's from 1 Chronicles 18, verse 3. So Assyria and its allies and vassals, meaning like city-states, saw David and his army as a threat. David's army won round number one of this battle when his commanders Joab and Abishai led the Israelite army to victory. David then mobilized all Israel and personally led the Israelites to victory in round two. In round two, some Mesopotamians had fled the scene but the Syrians, Arameans, called on their allies east of the Euphrates, in other words, in Mesopotamia, to help them fight Israel. This is a time when David logically would logically call on God for victory in this major warfare. Psalm 83 is that prayer. The entire context of Psalm 83 is David calling on God to grant him victory versus an alliance of nations that included Asher, which is Assyria, Notice in Psalm 83, verse 8, that Asher and its vassal nations come to, quote, help the children of Lot. Ammon and Moab were the children of Lot. In 1 Chronicles 19, verses 1 through 6, this relates to an episode where the Ammonites, which were the children of Lot, offended David, so the Ammonites reached out to help, to get help from the Mesopotamians, which have included Assyria and its many vassals and in near Mesopotamia. Psalm 83 lists the vassals of the Assyrians in this battle. Psalm 83 fits perfectly with 1 Chronicles 18 through 19. Notice another fact. When David authored his this psalm, he was speaking in the present tense. Psalm 83, verse 3 through 5, they have taken, quote, they have said, they have consulted together. It's all in the present tense, is the point. David was therefore addressing something that was. Then happening in his personal lifetime, not something in the latter days. In verses 9 through 16, David asked God for a great victory over his enemies in the coming battle, but there's no reference to any time frame further than that into the future. David's army did win that battle, and it reshaped the middle the Mid Eastern world for quite some time. So there's a lot more you can read in this article. I'll put it in the resources, it's a very useful study on this topic. And Of course, Collins, Steve Collins is not the only person that defends these views. And we can look and see again, what does context tell us? There is nothing that would suggest Psalm 83 is an end times prophecy. If God intended to, and certainly the Psalms are prophetic, but most of them are about Jesus. But if it was going to be a prophecy, then we know that God is consistent. God has always been consistent with everything. And when it comes to prophecy, he is very transparent and announces that this is about the end times. There's no such announcement in this psalm. So that's strike one. Strike two is that we can identify that there's an actual historical precedent where this was fulfilled in the past. Using history, both outside the Bible and within the Bible in those passages cited in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 18 through 19, of the various wars that that David engaged in, obviously. He was was always fighting the nearby nations, and he was always calling on God for help. Now, there's an objection to this, and it's a weak one, but we'll tackle it anyway because it's an objection. If you aren't well versed on this topic, it's easy for the objection to, again, sway you because... People don't question the assumptions. The objection is this, that there's a 10 groups of people listed. And 10, the number 10 or 10 groups, correlates prophetically to other places in Scripture. For example, in Revelation 13, the beast with seven heads and 10 horns. The beast that the mystery Babylon is writing, seven heads and 10 horns. Daniel's, Daniel 2, the statue with the 10 toes. All these things tend to relate to various kingdoms, king, uh, you know, kings, powers. And I've broken that down in my end times series. Nevertheless, because there are 10 groups mentioned in Psalm 83, people are making the connection that, oh, well, you see, that's prophesying about the 10 kingdoms in the future. Which, again, this is very, very weak. So just understand that. But nonetheless... Let's see why it's weak. Why is it poor exegesis to, to read that into this text? Well, there's several reasons. The first one is the two powers are long gone. Tyre is listed, and it was a city-state, basically in the Lebanon area. And it was conquered by Alexander the Great and pretty much wiped off the mat. Everybody was sold into slavery. Thousands of people were killed and destroyed and ravaged. And if you look in history, we're going to look at this. This is a uh, archaeology, Bible reading archaeology. This is an aerial shot of Tyre. This is basically just ruins now. There's nothing there. You can read all about it. I'll put in the, the resources for this episode. But there's nothing there. The same for Gibar, which used to be Biblos. That's just another name for it. But again, it's also in Lebanon and it was destroyed. It was occupied by... Alexander the Great, who's occupied by Romans, Muslims. It's, you know, it's just, there's nothing consequential. So two out of the 10 have been destroyed and there's nothing that you can tie them to, to modern day powers. Not at all. So that's one thing to consider. Another thing to consider is that two powers listed are redundant. And that's Amalek and Edom. Amalek and Edom are listed But Edom and Amalek are redundant if we're trying to count to 10 and trying to use that as some sort of prophetic significance. They're basically the same thing because Amalek was one of the many Edomite tribes. He was Esau's grandson, and we know that from Genesis 36, verse 12, where it says, Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. So Esau's son bore Amalek, meaning Amalek is Esau's grandson. Esau is Edom. And we know that in Numbers 24, verse 20, it says, Then he looked on Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among nations, but its end is utter destruction. This is Balaam's final oracle. And this was fulfilled. I mean, the Amalekites were destroyed. They were destroyed. In 1 Chronicles 4, verse 43, it says, And they defeated the remnant of the Amalekites who had escaped. And they have lived there to this day. There are no people today that you can trace to the Amalekites. And the Amalekites and Edom, the Amalekites are Edomites, or were, I should say. So you have another problem now. You have two that are redundant, and one of them is destroyed. Amalekites are gone. Hagrites are also mentioned. They don't exist anymore. Psalm 83, verse 6, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites. They're not mentioned pretty much in too many places. In First Chronicles 5, verses 19 through 20, they, wa- they waged war against the Hagrites, Jetur, Nafish and Nodab. And when they prevailed over them, the Hagrites and all who were with them were given into their hands, for they cried out to God in the battle, and he granted their urgent plea because they trusted in him. So these people are, the Hagrites are mentioned very briefly, but they're not a world power. They're not an empire. They never really were anything significant they were a tribe and they were defeated. Very obscure, there's no record of them archeologically. So again, one, another one that you can't tie to, to like a modern situation where you can say, oh, these people, you know, the, the Iranians are, they're not, I'm just saying, like, you can't say, oh, see, the, Iran is actually the Hagrites. You can't do that. They don't exist, they haven't existed for a very long time. Now, Ammon is listed And we know that the capital of Jordan is Amman. So there's probably, with certainty there, with with pretty strong certainty, that it's the land of Jordan. But Jordan is a meaningless country. They're a small country. It's inconsequential. They're not an empire. There's nothing you could say like, oh yeah, Jordan is some huge power. The Philistines are mentioned, but they were conquered by Alexander the Great and other empires. They're destroyed. They're no longer around. There's no evidence, by the way, also of any Palestinians or Arabs being linked to the Philistines. Nobody can say, today, oh yeah, these people today are the modern day Philistines who basically surround Israel. No, there's no such connection. We mentioned Ashur, which is really Assyria. But Assyria was conquered by Babylon. Assyria has no end times Prophecy role because this Daniel's Daniel 2, the statue that um, Nebuchadnezzar sees, and you know, it's a prophecy pretty much until the return of Christ, till the rock comes and destroys this Babylonian system. It starts with Babylon, it starts with King Nebuchadnezzar, then it goes to Persia, Medo Persia, then Greece, then Rome, and then finally the power that comes out of Rome, which is the. Roman Catholic Church, the papacy, the union of church and state, the power that's different than all the rest. And I talk about all of this in the end time series very plainly, lay it out. You don't have to get super confused or anything. It's very straightforward. I thought the Bible prophecy was very confusing, but you know what? The reality is that we are very confused. Bible prophecy is actually very straightforward because God is consistent God is incredibly consistent. It's it's profound how consistent He is. But because we're confused, we we, you know, this is why you need to pray on it. We need to let go of what you've been taught on the end times. And approach scripture and let scripture interpret scripture. Approach it with fresh eyes. And of course, context, which is the word of the day every single day. But nonetheless, it starts with Babylon. The whole end times thing starts with Babylon. Mystery Babylon. It's not mystery Assyria. It's mystery Babylon. So Assyria is meaningless as well. So most of these nations are extinct. They went, they went extinct a long time ago. They have no purpose in end times prophecy whatsoever. There's no way to tie any of the nations 3,000 years ago, to anything prophetically happening today in the Middle East, because so much has changed. But you see, this is the problem. Dispensationalism takes today and tries to hunt places out in scripture, like Psalm 83, and say, oh, look, see, this confirms our Jewish focused eschatology, when in fact, this was written about the Israelites 3,000 years ago and their battles with all the surrounding tribes. That's what it was written about. It was not written for some future imposter counterfeit state of Israel that was created by the papacy, by the way, and to basically suit their end times eschatology. It's not talking about that. It's talking about present reality of David. People say it's the Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog, it's happening. Oh my gosh. But people have tried to pick nations to match who Gog and Magog are, because again, Gog and Magog don't exist anymore. That was a way to refer to certain nations and tribes and areas that do not at all exist today. And people have all sorts of theories. Is it Russia? Is it Turkey? Is it this and that? But again, go back to the basics. This is why, again, like you could you could spend your whole life just studying end-time stuff and debating on, you know, pinning the tail on Gog and Magog or pin the tail on the Antichrist. When in reality, the assumptions of these things are wrong. You don't have to know who Gog and Magog is. You have to know who Mystery Babylon is. And what Revelation says that the second beast, which is the false prophet, which is a system, it's a political power. Spoiler alert, it's the United States. How that system will fool people into thinking that a Christian nationalist system is a good thing. This is why the second beast is is involved in building an image, meaning a replica of the first beast. What was the first beast? The first beast was a Christian nationalist system that ruled with an iron fist where the kings of the earth gave their power to the Pope. That happened, that ruled for 1400 years, 1260 officially, but really started with Constantine. But then, That system is coming back because Mystery Babylon is exactly that. The kings of the earth will give their power to the woman riding the beast. And of course, yeah, there are 10 kings. But did you know that the Club of Rome about 50 years ago published a world map and it had 10 kingdoms on it, 10 economic kingdoms? They see the world being divided into 10 basically nation states or segments. And those 10 people in the future hasn't happened yet we're moving there rapidly they will give their power to mystery babylon and mystery babylon the woman the church will be riding the beast or political system that's what you should know concern yourself with that so that you can see rightly what is happening on world on the world stage but if you are not questioning your assumptions about israel and the tribulation and the antichrist, the personal antichrist that's going to walk into a physical Jewish temple when in reality the real temple is the body of Christ and we know who walked into that long ago and proclaimed himself to be God. It's the popes, the papacy. But if you're concerned with physical things like that, then you're going to look and spend your time on so much fruitless stuff like trying to pin the tail on Gog and Magog very very important. So remember remember a couple things that are very important. Daniel 70 weeks which even dispensationalists will agree to as a historically fulfilled prophecy although they appropriate history incorrectly to that prophecy, nonetheless they recognize that it's a prophecy that's historical. Daniel 70 weeks of course Jesus is the key as always. It's always about Jesus. You focus on the Lord, you will find the way. The prophecy of the 70 weeks predicts to the year so many things that happen. And if we plot it out through archeology span and history, we see without a shadow of a doubt that it is interpreted historically. And it's not, there's no future 70th week, by the way. That prophecy was fulfilled in AD 34, it finished. But what does that mean? That means that if you read your Bible carefully, you realize that Daniel's 70 weeks is part of a larger prophecy of 2,300 days. Daniel in chapter 8 of Daniel was so confused that he was sick, he didn't understand the prophecy that he had prayed for. So Gabriel comes back in Daniel 9 and answers his prayer and says, hey, I'm here to give you a little clarity. So check this out, Daniel. Part of that prophecy is reserved for your people. And X, Y, Z, it's 70 weeks. Now, let's do the math. If the 70 weeks are interpreted historically, meaning days equal years, it's 490 years total, not 70 real weeks. And that prophecy was part of the greater prophecy of 2,300 days. That means the 2,300 day prophecy is actually 2,300 years. And all those other times when you hear 1260 days in Daniel, they're not days, but years. Do you see how this all just goes boop, 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 and unfolds? Because Revelation builds off of Daniel. Now, what that means further is that all the times in Revelation are not literal days, like you've been told and you've been fooled, but actual physical years, literal years, prophetic years. So you have 1,260 years. Now that's a very different reality because it means you have to reinterpret everything from a historical lens. And when you do that, you see the truth. And you will see the truth if you go and watch the series. But all the days in Daniel are prophetic and therefore revelation is also prophetic and therefore dispensationalism refutes itself. Because if you interpret the, the Daniel's 70 weeks as historically fulfilled, you have to interpret the rest of the time periods in Daniel as day-to-year principle. Even if you want to hold to your 70th week in the future, which is not true, you refute your position of a seven-year tribulation, of a 1260-day time period, You know, three and a half years in the Antichrist walking in the temple. All that stuff is nonsense. It's refuted by Daniel's 70 weeks. That's the key, and I go into great detail in my series. But there's no other power in history that comes close to fulfilling all of the words of Daniel about the little horn, all the words of John in Revelation, with the beast, first piece from the sea, Mystery Babylon. There's no other power in history, folks. even comes close to the Roman Catholic papacy. All the reformers agreed on this. And since then, we have Straight because the Catholic Church created futurism in response to the reformers recognizing that they were the beast. Can't have that. So we got to create an, an opposing narrative, counter propaganda. And ever since, people have not been the wiser and they cling to dispensationalist teachings. But they are coordinating what you see in the Middle East. And this is the other thing to mention. Nothing that happens on the world stage, at least at this point in time, at this late in the game, is by accident. Everything is planned and coordinated because we're coming up to the end. Meaning that what you see in Israel, if you've followed the story with that, you know that they allowed it to happen. Just like 9-11, just like all these other things that have happened in history, they allowed it to happen. Pearl Harbor, no different. It was planned so that they would have a justification for a war and a conflict, when which what a conflict is, is what? It's justification for the next thing, which is world peace. Possibly maybe some larger war before that, but ultimately it's everything is designed to bring about the world solution, where the kings of the earth will give their power to the beast. The Pope is the one that's negotiating peace all the time. What does Daniel say? By peace he shall destroy many, and he doesn't have an army of his own. It's because this power is a power by proxy and the kings of the earth will give their power to this entity, to this system. Stop watching Israel. Stop obsessing over what's happening in the Middle East. It's important to know to some extent because you want to know how the beast is moving and manipulating things. So if you have the right mind and the right seeing, then yeah, you can look at these things and say, okay, I see where they're going with this. But if you're thinking, oh my gosh, Psalm 83, conflict, the rapture is coming, then you are being deceived. You're being deceived. So stop watching Israel and start watching things like the rise of Christian nationalism in the United States. Very significant. We have a new Speaker of the House. He's a Christian nationalist. That's something to watch. Watch what the Pope is doing, what he's saying, how he's coordinating, and slithering around behind the scenes and uniting people to Mystery Babylon. Watch the climate change agenda, because that's going to be in full swing in the future situation. Watch the rise of the charismatic movement, hyper-Pentecostalism, the NAR movement. All these things are fusing into one religion, folks, one counterfeit spirit. And I talk about that in my series. So go check it out. But these are false teachings, word of faith, faith healing, prosperity gospel, NAR, This is all coming from the United States, which is the false prophet. These are false sides and wonders that the false prophet is working. And guess who's behind Christian nationalism? Well, all these people, all these people love the union of church and state. Kenneth Copeland and Joel Osteen, they love the Pope. They're hanging out with the Pope all the time. The the Protestant Reformation is over. Even, I believe, what's his name? Tim... um, I forget his name. He's a pastor, a famous Lutheran pastor. I think he's passed away now. But he said famously that the Protestant Reformation is over. And it is. The Counter-Reformation that was created by the Jesuits is right on schedule. America, as the false prophet, with all of its signs and wonders, like I just listed, which are just the tip of the iceberg, will lead people and shepherd people back into a union of church and state. People will beg for religion to be part of every aspect of life because they are being forced into the opposite, which is atheism and communism and globalism. The new world order will come, people. You're not gonna stop it. When you see these provocative posts on YouTube or BitChute or rumble and say, oh, Babylon has fallen, new world order is over. Do you really think that you, you get to have a front row seat and you get to be in on it? like everybody's watching with some popcorn that the new world order is falling. That's not what's happening. The new world order will fall when Christ returns. And if you're alive by then, then yeah, you'll get, you get a front row seat. But right now, this is the fall of the decoy so that you can embrace the one world system that they've planned for all time, where Lucifer is going to be worshipped. And the false light, the false golden age, the false paradise, the counterfeit millennial kingdom, the counterfeit you know, millennial reign, the counterfeit eternity that's coming on the horizon. That is what you need to be worrying about. But you aren't going to see that if you are convinced by all of these lies on the end times. So these are things to watch. And again, I hope I've given you some things to be curious of. I hope I've edified you with this. If you have any questions, feel free to email me or to put them in the comments. But again, stop watching Israel and really understand the truth about the end times. There are so many things to discuss in the end times. Don't worry about mastering all of them, but rather understand your basics. What does it mean when Daniel gives a time prophecy? Is he talking about days or years? Because those two things are very different. And why? Why? You should always ask why. So question your assumptions, question your beliefs, where you get them from, and know where you are. Study so that you can show yourself approved. Until next time, take it easy, stay healthy, God bless. Hey, thanks for being here. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you want in-depth Bible studies, free resources, encouragement, or if you just want to get in touch with me, check out danceoflife.com. Until next time, God bless.